You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here are the aisles, the projectionist, Esmicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski, and uh, this episode is titled, Wow, She Doesn't Look Shrewish. <laughs> yes, you heard me right, Shrewish as in Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. We're talking about uh, shrews in a way, but it really has to do with the, the film that Yitzhak wants to uh, recommend and talk about. But it's really more than the, uh, the idea of taming shrews or and Yitzhak. I'm going I'm to spoil it already. Yitzhak is going to talk about The Killer Shrews, 1959 film that Yitzchak is going to talk about that. But what we're really, we're really going to talk about in, in many ways is the problem that besets many when they come to appreciate film or maybe even anything, whether it's books or svarim or even rabbis, is looking at things through the lenses of the experts, the lenses of the critics, the lenses of the ones who supposedly know everything about everything and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Uh, the books and the magazines uh, and the people who have a career out of steering you to the right place in order for you not to waste your time. So the films that we're gonna talk about are really films that in many critics' eyes are considered minor or mediocre or, or really not worth your time. Um, and and bo- both of these types of statements have been have been labeled against both of the films. I'll tell you what they are. Yitzchok's is Ray Kellogg's The Killer Shrews, and mine is a very famous, a much more famous director and writer, of course, Billy Wilder's uh, very much forgotten 1948 film. Uh, up until the time you viewed it recently, you considered a mediocre, terrible film, and now you actually want to talk about how there is what to recommend it. So talk a little bit about The Killer Shrews before and after. I've seen The, the Killer Shrews with um, the commentary of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 probably several dozen times, maybe even could be over a hundred times. And I've, um, and, and this television show Mystery Science Theater 3000 was They've recently rebooted it a couple of times, actually, but the original show was in the in the 1990s. Actually, started in the late 80s, but it was it got national coverage in the 90s. Uh, first on the Comedy Channel, which was before Comedy Central, then it became Comedy Central. Well, before well, KTMA was earlier, but that was only local in in uh, Wisconsin, I think. Or, so, so, what you, so I think Mystery I, Science Theater, what it was, was was basically you have like a couple of Litsonim, a couple of critics and cynics and clowns who are representing you watching this movie. So you can actually sort of see like a like like a sort of a screen, and then you sort of have the 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 bodies of the critics, and you can hear their comments as the movie is going. They're like they're like they're biting satirical negative comments throughout the film. Is that basically the way it works? It's both. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but it's, it's always a lot of fun. And, and it wasn't always the worst movies. You know, there were a lot of movies that they had presented there that I would enjoy them on their own. And this movie, 
I felt like it was something I could only watch with with the with the jokes from Mystery Science Theater. So so the the, the the three with Sonam, whatever you want to call them, the three clowns, the three critics, whoever they are, you know, whatever characters they were playing, did they allow most of the dialogue of the original film intact, or were they jumping all over it and making fun of it? No, you, you they specifically picked movies that the dialogue wasn't too overbearing in order to be able to use it. So they they said the reason why they never showed Plan 9 from Outer Space is because it had too much dialogue, and so therefore they weren't able to uh, to, to talk over it, whereas this movie had a lot more, like this one, the Killer Shrews particularly, had a lot of empty space without dialogue. So you were able to hear most of the dialogue in, in a lot of these movies. There, there were two movies they did from Ray Kellogg was the Killer Shrews and the Giant Gila Monster, and I remember there were some lines from the Giant Gila Monster that I was like, what exactly did they say? What was, you know, especially with the introduction, there's a little narration in the beginning of both of these movies to kind of explain uh, what's going on, where, where these monsters came from. But uh, uh, from the two, I always enjoyed the giant Gila monster more being someone who enjoys reptiles. I have my pet lizard on my shoulder as I'm recording this now. So uh, then... Right. And, and these films were both basically made the same time. I think uh, he was working probably, Kellogg was working probably on both of them. Right, They're both Ken Curtis's for a second. He, he plays a very uh, major role in The Killer Shrews. Um, he's like sort of like the, the heavy, the bad guy in a certain way, the cowardly bad guy. Um, and of course, I know Ken Curtis uh, growing up uh, watching Gunsmoke every week. Uh, he he played Festus on Gunsmoke, and he actually took the place of Dennis Weaver. In other words, the Dennis Weaver character on, on Gunsmoke, who's uh, Muley, I think his name was, um, uh, was a very popular character to the fact that Dennis Weaver thought he could actually go out on his own. And of course, he had a program in the early 1970s called McLeod, where he actually wasn't just some sort of, you know, a sidekick to James Arness, he actually had a pretty solid run as a lead actor in a, in a television series. But when when the sort of, you know, uh, sidekick, uh, you know, fellow left Gunsmoke, Ken Curtis, I think he must have had a run for about 14 or 15 years on Gunsmoke. I'm not sure how many years he was on there. But uh, uh, he affected very much a uh, sort of like a, you know, uh, a chill wills type of accent uh, but in this film, uh, The Killer Shrews, he's sort of playing it straight, right? The Ken Curtis character. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very, I mean, he's, he's this very dastardly, cowardly character. Um, like you said, he's the heavy. He's, he's a bad guy and he's someone who you really hate. You're not, you don't want to root for this guy at all, the way he's acting and anything. And so it's, it's, it's interesting he put his own money behind it. And I think the... You know, I guess he really believed in the project and thought maybe he had a, had, had a career, at least a, in this little independent film as some sort of serious well, both, actor. Both of those films are kind of companion pieces. He, he, he put money behind both of those movies. So, it's, uh, uh, so and basically what we're talking about is not, they're both sort of horror films and they both sort of have, a, have creatures at the center of it, the terror, creatures that are terrorizing. But let's talk about the killer shrews. These shrews are killers and what's going on? Why is it that, that, that they are so, so I, terrible? The thing that I, I really want to bring out is like Chazal say, that one 
one joke can push away a hundred rebukes. And I always just thought this was a goofy, silly movie where dogs are playing shrews and didn't make much sense. And watching it, Spanguli showed it uh, this Matzei Shabbos, and watching it without the commentary really opened my eyes. It, it, it gave me some chills. It gave, it, it, I found it to actually be a scary movie. The story is, is that there are these scientists on a, 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 a lonely island somewhere doing these experiments in order to prevent, uh, to, to uh, you know, in, in anticipation of eventual overpopulation, they figured if they could lower the metabolism and the necessary food intake of humans and other animals around the world, they, it would solve the problem of overpopulation. And so they started experimenting with shrews uh, because their metabolism is so high and they require so much food, they have to eat three times their own body weight. That's a, a refrain that you find uh, throughout the movie, including in the opening narration, that they have to eat three times their own body weight every 24 hours or starve. And how they, how vicious and ferocious they are, that they, they eat everything. They eat bones and skin and marrow and they don't leave anything behind. And um, so, what was, so they're similar to humans. I think the idea was they would eventually miniaturize human beings. I don't know if they miniaturize every other living thing on the planet. And somehow the, the natural resources of the planet would stay as large as they are. But since we would, since we would be, everybody would be smaller, this way we'd be able to make use of the, of, of, of the natural environment. So I'm not sure why the shrews, how they fit in exactly, but. Yeah, I mean, they were actually trying to make them, even though they're small animals, I think they were trying to make them smaller and they wind up accidentally making them bigger. And that was uh -huh. the, so the movie opens up, this sailor comes to deliver some, some uh, rations or whatever to these people on the island. And they say, oh, we're, we're leaving today, right? And he said, no, there's a hurricane coming. So we, we're, we're stuck here for the night. I can't, you know, I can't go back. And meanwhile, they're really anxious, particularly for the scientist's daughter, who herself is a scientist, to leave the island, to get off of the island, to escape these, these monsters. And so basically the, the POV of the film is from, the, uh, from Thorn who is the captain of the ship who's bringing them supplies. He's the one who sort of, we represents ourselves. He's the one who's coming to the strange place. And he's the one who's discovering the secrets of this island. And of course he's played by James Best who, uh, I didn't watch the, this program when I was growing up and I don't think you did either, but I think some of our listeners might remember him. My wife. Him. <laughs> my wife <laughs> some of these head. might remember. Well, definitely people in my neck of the woods where I was raised watched yeah. it. In, in Tennessee, but uh, I, I was obviously out of Tennessee when the show, and this was, of course, he was one of the main stars, I think, of the Dukes of Hazard, right? He was one right. of the... He was the sheriff, yeah. And so, uh, so James Best is the, uh, is, is gives us a POV, and he's the one who discovers, um, you know, this uh, Swedish, <laughs> this Swedish actress, Ingrid Good, plays the daughter of the, uh, of the scientist, and the one who's working on things, is right, here here comes our uh, Jewish content here. Sidney Lumet's dad, Baruch yeah, Lumet. Yeah. Baruch Lumet uh, plays, and I don't know how many films Baruch Lumet was in, but uh, you know, he's he's 
he is the uh, he's the Jew. He's not a Jew, obviously, in the film, but uh, he's the one who's actually working on this program to save humanity, uh, possibly. And uh, and Ken Curtis is the is his assistant. Killer shrews have escaped, and they're and they're wreaking havoc on the island. So that's basically. And, and it's really and it's really Jerry's fault. It's Ken Curtis's fault, right? He, yeah, left, he left the door open, and and they escaped, and now they're they they've bred, and there's a few hundred of these shrews, which are played either by puppets that look like dogs or wolves, or by dogs with some shag carpeting on them and some yeah. dentures or something. So it's, and and that's the reason why Mystery Science Theater or others felt that it was probably so goofy and ridiculous because of the cheapness of how cheap the special effects were in terms of trying, yeah. obviously, you know, again, we're spoiled because of CGI and anything that doesn't look anything like, like, like the real thing, um, you know, we, we laugh at it. But I think what you're, I think what you're trying to get at is that, okay, if, if you can, if you can suspend your disbelief about how cokey they look, it's very similar. I think the plot sounds very similar although it doesn't have sort of like this don't play God business, but it sounds very similar to many, many other films of, of you know, uh, that we have uh, from probably from the 1920s till Jurassic Park, which is a bunch of people stuck in a, an island, stuck in a house, and there's a terrible storm and something like this, and there's monsters on the outside, and how are they going to react? I mean, that's, that's your classic, um, you know, horror uh, I don't know if it's a trope, but it's a very it's a classic recipe for most of these a lot of these horror films, including Jurassic Park. Yeah, and 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 the interesting thing is, I guess a little bit more like Jurassic Park, and less like what we talked about two weeks ago, the, the three weeks ago, the Devil Bat. And the Devil Bat, the this mad scientist was really mad. He was really crazy. He was and he was and and angry. He was both types of mad. And he and he was really nefarious in what he was doing. This is, I think, a little bit more like Jurassic Park. Certainly, there's the the uh, lines about using you know genetic engineering, but also that it, it really has a, probably a more positive reason. Meaning, Jurassic Park was just for entertainment. Like there was no tactless to bring the dinosaurs back, other than that's cool to have dinosaurs. But this was, like we said, they they were really trying to solve problems. They were trying to to get the uh, people out of, uh, you know, to, to prevent overpopulation and to prevent starvation. And yet, with all that being said, it's really a critique of that whole idea. It's, it's in a way, it's almost a, a major critique of, of, you know, wokeness and, and environmentalism in general, and really a plea for, for traditionalism, a plea for well, even though there's no religious context in this movie, and and unfortunately it does have not I, I you know some kind of minor racial stereotypes. I mean the the, the first I, two I, characters I, who I, killed right, are it's very similar to what we were talking about last week. It's about about having some sort of I don't know if he, the character Rook, who is the black fellow, the African American fellow, who um, they're not sure what happens to him, but the viewer knows, right? Uh, you can see that he is stuck in some sort of tree, and the and the shrews are after him. Um, do you yeah. think? Do you think? Uh, a, you know, today's audience watching that fellow, um, would they see? Oh, there's your typical black guy who's only put into the movie uh, to be the sacrificial lamb. Does, does he exhibit a step, any sort of Stephen Fetchett type of uh, 
behavior in terms of the fear or you know like a black person being uh, showing cowardice in the face of these monsters oh yeah only only really when he's actually being killed meaning earlier on when he's you know he's he he does talk with you know some stereotypical accent but he's he's not such a negative character until but he is certainly you know frightened and then and then the, the next victim is is hispanic is mexican named mario perhaps to have a mustache and it's named mario mm-hmm. um and so both of these are are unfortunate racial stereotypes but uh, they could be nonetheless they could be you know similar to people who who do exist it's not it's not so far out there um, but again, it's it's you know that we we see the difference between you know the night of living dead, which is you know a very similar type of thing. They're stuck in the house all night and they can't. And there you have the um, you know the 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 hero is is the African American character, and uh, and this one you know here the first victim like like most of these movies are. But then I think. You know, but forgetting those racial stereotypes, it's also a very anti-feminist movie. And, you know, the fact that this, the scientist's daughter who herself is a very accomplished and intelligent to the character. She's engaged to the Jerry character, the Ken Curtis character. But because of his cowardice, she, she, she breaks up the engagement. And, and she seems uh, to be infatuated with the James Best character. The Right, yeah, right away. She, she, right away. And. Uh, and her whole thing is that, you know, like uh, Ken Curtis character is saying, you know, how can such an intelligent person like her fall for just a, you know, a, a simple sailor like this guy? But she's saying, you know, she doesn't want to live this life anymore. She's, you know, she's been there, done that. She's accomplished, you know, this, what she thought was going to be fulfilling to be this great scientist and find these great, you know, save the world. And then she realized that she's, uh, you know, she's she find she would find, you know, settling down and living a boring domestic life to be much more fulfilling to have a to get married and have children and, and you know live in the suburbs somewhere. Uh, that so, be... Yeah, well, it sounds like I, I know that again. Spoiler alert! I mean, the um, uh, the only people that make it off. I mean, she's one of the few people that makes it off the island. Along I mean, with there's her, another, her dad. another scientist with them who's really like an absent mind professor character and very cold, very, you know, he's excited when when someone dies and they dis- make some kind of scientific discovery about the monsters. And instead of having compassion that this Mario got killed by the monsters, because, and rather he's excited because look, look what we discovered about it. And he's more excited, you know. About it, it reminds me of the, uh, the scientific discovery. He has no compassion. That, that which again is a, is a theme that you find in a lot of scientific films in the 1950s, whether it's the Japanese films that came out or the American films, the mistrust of what the eggheads are doing, uh, which is all goes back to the powers of destruction that were unleashed in World War II. And you yep. find that theme consistently about a man's heart not reaching up. Uh, to where his the horizons that his mind is taking him to, and again, that's part of 2001 and many other films. So, Metropolis, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, this is really again one of the major, one of the major, one of the major things that films are able to do because they're not going to give you a science lesson, but they can give yeah. you, they can so, show, they can show you the emotions and the feelings and the coldness of the people involved, and I guess that's part of what uh, the film is about. 
Yeah, so in the end, you know, the, the father and the daughter and, and James Best, they're the only survivors. And and again, the Baruch Lamet's character, he's he's so excited to to say, you know, look at this is this is exactly what we're trying to prevent that on a microcosm in this island, it's exactly what happens when there's overpopulation and they're gonna devour each other, these monsters and the and then the, so then James Best he, he he, he finally gets the girl at the end. He said, I'm not going to worry about overpopulation right now. And I think it's really, as, as much as that, you know, there, there's humor in that and whatever else, it's also a statement about, you know, the, this, oh, this uh, obsession with environmentalism or whatever else. And, and there's a lack of betokhan, you know, especially if people are, don't have any religious faith at all that's connected to that and how really a traditional life is much more fulfilling than, than these chaloimists that people have about the, you know, about right. how, you know, that they, they, they think there's, they think the world, first of all, is in trouble that it isn't. And then, and then they think that they're going to save the world. And are they, are they not, you know, that's the, uh, that these are the questions that they have to. Oh, it's, it's very hard for a person who isn't, uh, connected strongly to his faith and isn't able to get the nachas, whether it's from those fair rambams or from a life of Torah mitzvahs, not to be assaulted by the imagery, the messaging that the news media does. And frankly, again, if you're if you're agnostic and you take a look at the world, you look at, at, at when this film was made, uh, 15 years after World War II, uh, the Cold War was still uh, considered uh, the threat to life of, on the whole planet. Um, you, obviously, people still remembered the death and destruction, uh, the knowledge of the crematorias, and what the Nazis had wrought was public knowledge now, and everybody knew about it. So it, it's very hard, it's like, if you think about it, for someone not to be full of angst and full of nervousness about what's going to happen. Is, are we going to blow each other up? Look how cruel human beings are <laughs> to each other, um, and yeah. So it, it seems like you know the, the film is probably par for the course for the mania and the worry of the average American person. Uh, but, also, but also, like I said, that this, these these scientists actually believe they're doing something good. They're not they're they're I, not I, the, the mad scientists who are who are actually doing something evil. No, or no, I, I understand. I, I, but, I, I, but they're good. But they're mistaken good. It's just it's not it's not fulfilling and it's probably not even anything to it, you know. Well, you, maybe get, not necessary either. Right. Well, the investiture in, into that you can become so invested into it, so to the point that you sort of, as you said, the other scientist loses his basic decent sense of humanity uh, because you become so committed to the ideal, which again is something that we're seeing even playing out today. In, in politics, whether it's about global warming, whether it's about the caring for the next generation and the types of uh, cruelty and arm twisting in order to get there. So what you're talking about is not that, not, not that uh, different than what we're fi finding playing out today. But I guess part of what you're trying to tell us here is that yes, the message is a little bit old fashioned and it's the type of thing that is sort of counter, runs counter to what you expect. But what you're, I think, what you're trying to say is, is that you thought the film had was not was entertaining and did to you it was worth watching again and worth watching without the prejudice. I have to tell you, I did not see the film, 
but the little bit of the film that I did listen to, or at least watch some of it, that's available on Freebie and on YouTube, that you can find the film, you got to admit, I mean, Ken Curtis and uh, James Best and the other actors, none of them are going to uh, uh, impress you as if uh, they are the great method actings of Stanislavski and Luther Adler and, uh, and, 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 and the group or whatever it is. I mean, it, it is, I, I can see where the mystery science guys or Sven or whoever it is, I am not really familiar with those programs, but I can see how they could make fun of the line readings and the way the film, uh, the film is, is presented. It, it isn't exactly, um, it isn't exactly a masterpiece. <laughs> any... yeah, no, no, but it was, it was scarier than I thought it was. I was, I was very surprised of how, how how I was shooken up by this movie it really affected me and I wasn't I was not expecting that I was expecting to laugh at it and I really was it really spooked me out a little bit and I'd see and again I know the movie uh, you know by heart and I've seen it so many times maybe it was just this much a Shabbos so I was in a certain mood that was different no no I understand I think the message of, of, of as I started our show with today of sometimes taking off the uh, the blinders uh, and, and not looking at things through the prism that others force us to look at things through. And I think it, it's so easy to rely on that. And I think that's also the case here in, in, in the film, uh, which was made 11 years earlier, uh, called A Foreign Affair. I, again, the, if, if Wilder and Brackett, uh, who were this incredible screenwriting team, uh, and who wrote this as an original screenplay. And of course, they, they were responsible for The Lost Weekend. They were responsible for Nanochka, Balls of Fire, Bracket had written. Um, of course, uh, Wilder had been a, a team with a number of people, but uh, he and Bracket were considered uh, the top duo. They, of course, they also wrote a couple of years later, Sunset Boulevard, which many people feel is one of the greatest screenplays uh, ever written. Um, the, the, as I mentioned before, The Lost Weekend, uh, and really films that uh, uh, in 1951, I think they already broke uh, apart from each other, but both of them were very extremely successful producers and directors uh, in Hollywood. This film, as I said, A Foreign Affair, I think the title itself is suggestive. It's suggestive of foreign affairs, it's suggestive of what's happening outside of the United States, what's going on in the world. Uh, it's also suggestive of the fact that a person who's going overseas and having an affair, someone who is, let's say, from the United States is having an affair, a man and a woman are having an affair outside of the United States. Um, it's also perhaps a, uh, a sign that somebody, there's a guy from the United States who's having an affair with somebody who's foreign. So you have the major idea that what's happening outside of our Daladamas. Then you have the second thing, of course, is the idea of I'm not where I'm usually am, like I'm in Vegas or something like that. You know, so look what's happening now where I'm a typical American, but I'm having an affair in a foreign place. And also the American who's having an affair with a foreigner. All three things are true about the film, but I think the title is a little bit um, bland. And I think that's one of the reasons why if I didn't, I, I saw the trailer, 
I didn't listen to the sound of the trailer, but on the site that, that, that presented it, I can see that they, whoever the eggheads in Hollywood were that wanted to sell this, they knew that they were going to have a very hard time selling this film uh, because it is a very dark, cynical film about post-World War II Berlin. Uh, a little bit of a historical note here, Billy Wilder uh, was actually... Uh, given a grant by the U.S. government, I believe, uh, to make a film about what was happening. And I think, uh, I'm not sure if this film used that money or not, but originally the idea was that since Wilder was a, uh, a very successful uh, writer and director, uh, and he had an interest of going back to Germany, that's where his family was. He, of course, was a Jew who's, who left most of his family in Germany. Uh, and he discovered, of course, uh, when he went back after the war, that mo almost all of his relatives had been slaughtered and killed, including his mother and, and other family members. Uh, some of them, he couldn't even find their bodies because they were buried under rubble in Berlin. Um, so when he went there, uh, he was going for his own personal reasons, but also to observe and perhaps make a documentary film about what was happening. Because remember, we won the war, but then we had to win the peace. And for many years, whether it was in Japan and Germany, these two incredible industrial centers that had been shattered, destroyed, bombed to smithereens, not only did we have to, to sort of create a new life for them, uh, and real, and we had to, at least the idea was that we would change them, that Part of the problem of World War II was, was the evil of fascism that had poisoned the minds of the German and Japanese peoples. And now with the United States and the other allies uh, controlling the area, they would actually inculcate within them the great good old ideas of democracy and what it means to be a good citizen and not to hate Jews and hate other people and not to be violent and not to be aggressive. That, of course, is what uh, both Japan and Germany were suffering under at that time. Now, the problem is, is that as the film, one of the great lines in the film was, you wanted them up until now to be full of valor, and now you want them to be wise. Because the same soldiers that had been on Omaha Beach, the same soldiers that had been, uh, that had been pushing themselves with their bayonets, so to, so to speak, in their hands to kill and to, and to maim and to win and to put, their, to put their foot and their boot onto the neck of Jerry and Tojo would now have to rise, lift these people up and be their friend and show them that we could actually live in a world of peace. And that, of course, was a fantasy. And Billy Wilder knew that, and he was extremely cynical uh, about the chances of that happening. Wilder's films in general are usually very tightly written, extremely satirical, and I've talked about them here in this program and with you and other programs, especially films like The Fortune Cookie and the Apartment, where he exposes the hypocrisy and, and, and especially uh, the silliness and the simplicity and the duplicity and the hypocrisy of Americans. And this is part of what his target is here back in 1948 as well. I think we, we, were, we were much more successful, though, with Japan. I think Japan, we, we did succeed in that. Germany took a much longer time, probably mostly because it got chopped up between
between you know Russia and America and England and everybody else. Whereas the Japan, it seemed like Russia had no interest in Japan, so it was, was I think it was a lot easier. Point well taken. And both this film makes a uh, it talks about how we're going to teach them the only thing they have to steal is second base. Um, we're going to teach them about baseball, like 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 the and Billy Wilder um, is very aware of how silly it seems, how all the dogmatic ideas of, yes, we're just going to be models of what it means to be a good citizen. We're going to denazify them. And in fact, the, the, the hero, John Lund, who the, the role was really written for Cary Grant, who didn't want to be in the film, um, was the person who would be denazifying uh, the, 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 these members, which meant the ones that had Nazi past would actually be sent to some sort of work camp uh, to sort of like an ear miklut, so to speak, to work on their midos and to change them somehow and 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 turn them into something better. Uh, that's sort of like the idea that the the the, the, the film is about a uh, as we say in Hebrew, mishlachat, a uh, a group that is being sent from the United States of senators and congressmen who are there to observe what is happening and not necessarily. Uh, about how Germany is doing, but the morale of the American troops. And, and this is really where Wilder um, you know, opens up the idea that you can't police people that you and change people who you are, who you have defeated. Basically, it's almost innate and inherent in the human condition that the person you have vanquished, you are going to try to get whatever you can from them. So as the again, it seems like we we managed to do it with Japan and and we did it with baseball and everything else that that they were trying to do there, we 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 did right. It but there Japan, but there also but, but even in Japan there was and in Vietnam obviously as well there which we didn't win that war but still there was the idea that the GIs took advantage of the weakness of the populace. To do what they can to basically to to bra- to get what they can from graft and uh, all sorts of illegal stuff um, and mostly sexual favors that they would get from women who were desperate and and, and the film uh, indicates that that these soldiers were on the make that many of them were all over as this mishlachat is landing. Uh, these officers are talking about the stockings that they can get from the Brandenburg Gate uh, that they're going to be able to trade in order to be able to bed down some of these fraulines. Because remember, many of their husbands are dead. <laughs> many of the German men were, were, were killed in the Blitzkriegs and all these other uh, attacks against Germany. So these women are desperate. They don't have much. They live in bombed out hovels and the soldiers are preying on them. And this is really, the film is very clear about that. Uh, the, which was, it was quite interesting that, it, and, and I don't, I, I think uh, that part of the reason why the film has sort of lost its luster, I think there might've been some uh, movement or some push from the US military to, to stop this film from being shown because of the negative light that it, it, it portrayed uh, m- many of the GIs and even officers. Now there is this idea that the ultimate colonel uh, of this film, the one who's sort of like uh, the one who's sort of the brain person of the film, uh, who's played by 
uh, Millard Mitchell, who's sort of like the, uh, the guy, the colonel who sort of knows what's really going on, uh, he does, in, does display himself as a person of great integrity in the film, but he's one while most of them are just basically taking advantage. Uh, the, uh, the th so one of the people on this Mishlachat is Jean Arthur in, in her next to the last film role. Jean Arthur in the 30s and uh, early 40s was probably one of the most popular uh, film actresses. She had been in silent films herself. By the time she made this film, she was pushing 50 years old. Um, and her last film, of course, was the very great Western classic, A Shame. Um, she did have some, uh, she did try to get into television. We could talk to Tom Shabilla about what her success, the Gene Arthur show was on television. But for years, she was the spunky, everyday girl. Uh, she was the girl, of course, who had the, you know, who, who talked fast, sort of a gravelly voice, but everybody uh, was connected to her. She's nothing like Gina Harlow, nothing like Carol Lombard. She's just that girl that every American regular guy and girl can be connected to. Uh, she had a lot of smarts. She was able to deliver her lines with a staccato quickness and understanding. She, of course, uh, you know, whether it was in, uh, in, in, in Capra's two great films that featured her, whether it was um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, um, or uh, uh, Mr. Deeds Comes to Town, both of those films uh, she has, Gene Arthur is really the heart and soul of both of those films. And in this film, Gene Arthur plays Phoebe Frost. And that's the name of someone who is a very uptight, pent up, her hair is in a very serious bun. And she is the only one on this junket to Berlin who really cares. She comes from Iowa and she's bringing a cake to a, uh, a fellow Iowan who is supposed to be a birthday cake or a cake from a, a former sweetheart. And that's the John Lund character. And that is how uh, the screenwriter was able to get them to meet each other. Um, but she has got her notebook and she's taking notes. She's not fooled by what she's seeing. Um, the other fellows from various states with Southern drawls or New England accents, they don't really seem to care so much. They seem to be totally oblivious and just buying whatever, uh, the, whatever they're being told by the official members of the military. It's only the Gene Arthur character with a little bit of hint of that type of reporter that she was in some of those earlier Capra films that really senses that something bad is going on. Uh, she gets mistaken incredibly for a German Fraulein, and she ends up uh, being taken uh, with her one word of German that she knows um, to a nightclub. And that is where we have the third character, uh, Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich, uh, as you know, and I've talked about this here on this forum, was a virulent anti-Nazi person. She was a proud uh, German, but she was extremely unproud once 1933 came and the rise of Hitler. Uh, she was extremely outspoken in Hollywood against Germany. And of course, Israel awarded her a very special medal, I think in 1951. She raised money consistently uh, for the war effort. Um, and, and she was a, a tremendous star in Germany. Um, 
She, of course, had made German films and silent films. Uh, she was born actually pretty much about a year, about six months apart from Jean Arthur. They're pretty, they're blonde, both about the same age. They both lived till about 90. So they both basically uh, had the, their arcs of their lives are very similar. And in this film, the film is really about the contrast between them, because it turns out that the John Lum character, the one who gets the, uh, the cake, actually takes the cake, takes it to uh, the Brandenburg Gate area, and there is a lot of there is a lot of location shots that Wilder uses, and you can see what's going on, the type of black marketeering that's happening. And he takes the uh, cake and he trades it for a mattress that he's going to give to the Marlene Dietrich character, who I said is a uh, chanteuse, a singer in a uh, and a nightclub, nothing like the one that Sally Bowles was in Cabaret, because this is a nightclub that's a dive somewhere, that's some sort of illegal place um, that gets raided by the police at the end of the film. Um, and it has all its different sorts of, it's almost like the cantina in Star Wars, that it's the place where everybody shows up. Um, and one of the great, the brilliant touches of the film is that the songs that Marlena Dietrich sings, no one, has, she's not Jeanette McDonald, she's not a soprano, she doesn't have a great voice. She basically is just a, a Rex Harrison type of singer where she basically sings, she talks, sings the lyrics, but she does it with such power and emphasis. And there's three songs that are all about, that are very tied to the film. The illusion, um, uh, there's another song about Berlin in ruins. Uh, so really the songs that she's singing is very much about the, the motifs that the film is about, why people could be drawn to a place that's destroyed, what people are getting from it, uh, the, the vanquished people, the, the illusion that they hold on to, even the, the illusion of what the victors are holding on to in terms of have they really, what are they really accomplishing? What are they really doing? They say that they're there to change, but really what they're there is to gratify themselves. And the, and the victims are really basically just trying to deal with the, ter the terrible defeat. And this might have something to do with what you're talking about in terms of Japan. There is a certain submissiveness in the Japanese nature. And again, I don't want to be racist or say anything, but there is a sense of losing face and a sense that we lost uh, and in that way, there was a, there's a whole perhaps discipline and accepting, which I think the German people had a very hard time doing. Um, and, and, and you can sometimes see that the Nazi aspect uh, rears its head a, a number of times in a couple of, uh, of the characters there. But Marlene Dietrich's character, it turns out, has, was a bigwig in, in a way. She had been uh, always this a very beautiful and striking singer. And she had actually been romancing, been romanced by some of these Nazis. Um, the, the movie indicates uh, that, that they are actually have footage of her uh, with all different tours of Goring and some other types of characters and some other Nazi that they still haven't found yet. And basically what it turns out is, is that um, she is having an affair, as I said, with the with the captain, the captain, the John Lund character is basically not only is she having an affair with him, he is in charge of denazification. So he has lied on her uh, report. 
she really should be sent to one of these camps. She and and, and but he because he wants to use her, and he who knows what if he's married or not or what he have, seems to have said to have some sort of sweetheart at home. But this is his ticket. This is what he's doing. He has he has forged documents in order to keep her safe, and he has nightly liaisons with her. And so, <laughs> you got to admit, not exactly a positive character whatsoever. You know, here's a guy who's basically taking advantage. And, 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 and the Marlene Dietrich character also, although she keeps his picture, and in, in one part of the film, she talks about real love, you can tell that what she really cares about is, is, is just living day to day. Uh, there is no love when there's such a separation between the two parties. When one, when one is the have and the other is the total have not, there really is, it's really impossible to speak about a, a real love affair. It's clearly just each person just getting whatever it is that they want from each other without any building into anything positive at all. And that's where, uh, I, I guess, the part of the film that stretches a little bit of, uh, it becomes a little incredulous, is that he figures, uh-oh, Phoebe Frost is now on the case. She wants to figure out why is this Chanteuse, why is she able to be so free? Uh, when she finds her papers, she finds that she was somehow involved with Nazis. Why is it that she's on the loose? Is, could it be that there's an American who's protecting her? Is there some sort of soldier who's covering up for her? So she's going to discover who it is. Of course, the John Lund character, this Captain Pringle, <laughs> he knows that it's him. So therefore he decides to start wooing her. And he starts instead, he figures he's going to pretend that he is in love with her, that he's fallen in love with her. And this way, you know, Phoebe Frost admits that for years she has been bottled up, that her role as a public servant, she hasn't allowed herself to really have a love affair, that she was once taken advantage of by some congressman or some senator who was just using her to get her vote uh, on a certain matter that he wanted, that he wanted done. So she's resisted. But now she's discovering another guy from Iowa, just like herself. And now she realizes that perhaps she could find love. And meanwhile, of course, Pringle is just doing this in a cynical fashion to keep her away from the discovery that he's the guy who has been protecting Marlene Dietrich's character the whole time. So again, quite a tawdry little tableau here. Um, but, and again, and this is part of what the film um, expects you to believe. And I think this is one of the reasons why the critics don't like it is that they sort of, they tacked on this sort of saccharine ending where he does start to fall for the Gene Arthur character. Now, both Gene Arthur and William Dietrich were about 15 years older uh, than John Lund in this film. Of course, that doesn't stop love or affection from happening. But, you know, I, I think Lund is probably not up to the Cary Grant task of playing both sides here. He's not a terrible actor. You you were familiar, Yitzchok, with Lund from a number of films that he made in the 1950s as well, maybe even some of the sci-fi stuff that, uh, that, that, that you enjoy a lot. Um, this might have been his most prestige, the film that he probably had one of the most prestigious roles. Um, there is a, uh, in a way though, you know, we talk about Taming of the Shrew. Uh, you talked about the Irene Good character who somehow realizes that it's better, maybe it is more important to just go to the domestic, domestic life. 
That is, of course, when Jean Arthur's arc is very similar. She also is a shrew that is tamed. Uh, when you know she falls in love with this fellow, and although Marlena Dietrich eventually alerts her in a great scene where it's just both of them together, and you know a drunk scene where she ends up drinking a little bit too much, um, she ends up herself violating her own principles and going to the black market in order to get a type of strapless evening gown, which Marlena Dietrich uh, ridicules her for wearing because she doesn't seem to have the physique to be able to wear such a dress. But they end up being together. Uh, they end up, in fact, being arrested together on a raid at the, at the nightclub. And Dietrich is able to get her to get her out. So even though the the German underlings officially working for the United States, who are the military police, they know that she still has Nazi connections. And therefore her Nazi power is still in a way keeping her free from spending the night in the <laughs> in, 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 in the um, in prison. And she's able to get uh, she's able to get Gene Arthur, who was drunk and singing all about Iowa, <laughs> you know, because you have all these in this in this place. You have the the Russians are singing, uh, I don't know exactly, Utrechtorni or something like that, and the Americans are singing deep in the heart of Texas, and she's singing all about the corn in Iowa, drunk as a skunk, and instead of getting tossed into the to the tank, which would ruin her career and which would um, you know, would be a tremendous scandal back home. Um, she ends up being saved by Marlena Dietrich, who still has that type of protection, as we say. But she ends up revealing to to Jean Arthur's character that she has been, been protected by Pringle, and that Pringle is basically just fooling her. And this really breaks her heart. However, somehow, um, it turns out that... Uh, the brass knew the whole time that what Pringle was doing and that they're really setting their traps for this Nazi guy who is part of Marlena Dietrich's past. So really they've allowed Pringle to do this illegal act of uh, fraternizing with her, writing, you know, forging the denazification papers, just like Americans always do. Uh, we're willing to, uh, to be Mochel, one Avera, in order to catch the person we're really after, and they're going to use him as bait for this other Nazi who's going to come out of hiding and perhaps plan an assassination attempt to try to kill Pringle. So that's really uh, sort of where the film goes. It ends up incredibly, like I said, that he starts, he throws Marlena Dietrich over because he realizes that that's not really for him, and he can somehow fall in love with this girl. It's funny, you know, I, she resists taking her hair down which I thought was going to happen. But it is, like I said, a film that I think has relevance. And it happened for COVID. I think one of the main issues we, we were having is what was going on in Afghanistan? What was going on in Iraq? What, have, what has the United States been doing outside of its borders? And Billy Wilder as a emigre realizes that we do not understand the mentality of Europeans. We don't, we, we, we buy in to a lot of the hokum and pablum of what it means to be an American and democracy in the United States. And we don't realize that we don't exercise 
magnanimity and real goodness that often we are the ugly American. And, and, and it's a shock to us when that happens. I think this is part of what this film uh, deals with. And, and when people speak about the failure in Afghanistan, the failure in Iraq, uh, Wilder's film is very prescient in that way because it really speaks to the fact that you know, just going there with, with superior military power without really understanding uh, the essence of these people and what their history is and what they're about, and even the fact that they have to submit to you, whether it's a different religion or a different mindset or a different language, uh, is going to always gum up the works in the best laid plans of real politic. And in that way, I think the film, uh, you know, deserves a, 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 to be seen again, and especially from someone like Wilder, who I think was channeling a lot of his bitterness, despite the fact that America was the place that he escaped to. America was the place where he became, he became a millionaire. But I think this film, in a way, was sort of like a slap in the face to the American mentality. It's, it's funny because uh, 10 years later, he made a film called One, Two, Three, with uh, James Cagney about an American businessman in West Berlin. And it really, if you, again, if you look at these two films together, you can see where Berlin, I mean, the Berlin of 1948 was still bombed out. And the, the Berlin of 1961 of West Berlin was already becoming this industrial giant that we know today. So again, it, 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 it seems that, that Wilder was fascinated by this, this subject and as, as a little bit too long. It's about two hours long and it's up to you. I know that's an eternity. <laughs> Your film, I think, is only 67 minutes long, I think. Uh, and this one is an hour and 54 minutes. It could You could have shaved off 15 or 20 minutes to it. It would have been, uh, it would have crackled uh, similar to, I think, you know, a, a 60 minute, a 90 minute film like his masterpiece, um, Double Indemnity. But I think the film has been overlooked. I think it's been skewed by the by the U.S. military and by the critics, who you know who really found it um, lacking. Uh, maybe again because of a, a of an inferior leading man. But I think you, you look at Dietrich and and Arthur, you really have you know two of one of two great Hollywood stars, forties, thirties, forties, and fifties. There seems to have been like a push by the Hollywood moguls, the executives, let's put a song in there. And many times the song really is not relevant to the film. It was a way to- Now we're making a full, a full circle, not to the Killer Shrews, but the giant Gila monster had quite a few songs that really did not fit into that movie. <laughs> and you know why they did that? Because this way, you know, they could say, you know, this, this could help promote a mediocre film if you were able to get a song in it. Um, yeah, you know, you know, even films, you know, Doris Day, we talked about Doris Day and, and Marty Melcher, who was her uh, husband and producer. And he made sure that in all these films that she was making, even in the 50s and 60s, like Midnight Lace and some of the other films where, where you know, Doris Day played a, 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 as a, a person being terrified as, you know, as being a person who's being um, uh, hoodwinked and gaslighted and and in terror the whole time they made sure that the the credits would begin with a Doris Day song right you know like she's always singing something 
uh, get you know love this movie because she was happy to play a, a, a Nazi sympathizer, which she was not. You know what I'm saying? Um, she was happy to 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 basically embody what she thought was the standard mentality of many of those who went along with Nazism. Many of the women who went along with Nazism as well, because that was the winning team. Let's let's get what we can out of it. Um, and, and 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 in that way, again, the film I think is as relevant as it was when of Shinara, whatever it is, the power of of what others say, whether it's making fun of something or even just calling you over and saying, "Hey, let me let me give you some advice about this thing." Um, we we are very fragile things. We are very fragile in our perceptions of things. It's like, and when someone comes over to us and you know, doesn't let us form our own opinions about things, um, they have deprived us, deprived us of our own ability to think and reason on our own. But also, they have, you know, they in many ways have 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 soured and poisoned the prospect of really creating a relationship with, with other people. Shlomo Luria, the great of Shlomo Luria, uh, was, was upset about what Rabbi Yosekaira was doing in terms of uh, blind, you know, sort of like limiting our processing by saying, okay, here's the Shulchan Aruch, here are the sources, and this is the way you're going to process the sugya, as opposed to allowing someone the freedom to explore where he wanted. Now, obviously, Rabbi Yosekaira felt that he was doing a tremendous uh, a, a benefit for all his readers, for all the people who would be involved in Pesach um, And But when, whenever, as Shomalur says, whenever you look at things based on the stage that's been crafted by someone else and he has editing powers and limiting what you're going to see and what you're not going to see, so you are going to be taken in and you're not going to be doing the original thinking that's necessary. You're just going to be nodding and accepting, because, yeah, of course. Um, and I think you know whether it's whether it's appreciation of a godel, or appreciation of of a sugya, or anything. I think we I think we have to we have to, we have to balance ourselves. Yes, we're not gonna we're not gonna. Every, you have to run chumash and Rashi. I agree. You have to have Rashi with you. You have to have uncles with you. On the other hand, um, you know, if 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 you're just going to take out Nahama Levowitz or whatever it is and say, okay, this is the way, this is this is my reading of the parsha, this is the way I do things, I think what you end up you end up missing, you end up really stunting your potential. Obviously, what we're talking about Yitzchak is much more important <laughs> than the hour or two you might spend a week watching a film, but. It, it's really the same mentality, which is you have to you have to develop within yourself a critical way of thinking and trust your own ideas. Um, and as you say, whether it's the big people from Mystery Science Theater or yeah, uh, Leonard Malton or Roger Ebert, whoever it is that you're going to turn to, uh, you know, be ready to close the book and say, "Look, I want to see it myself." And I think that's. <laughs> That's not a bad way, I think, for us to end today. So watch your step on the way out, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 